0: Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White
1: and Ellen Trackman.
0: Welcome to a special edition of our podcast um, featuring more guests than we've ever had before. Very exciting. And a special conversation (laughs) about (laughs) COVID-19 and custody issues that become really prevalent right now. So let me first introduce everyone we have here. Eric Rubel, a previous guest of the podcast, an attorney. Eric, let's start with you introducing yourself.
2: I'm an attorney in New York. I have only practiced in the family law and matrimonial area. I started in uh, 1995. I have focused mostly on high net worth clients, but I also have a uh, practice that has evolved from just the dissolution of same-sex relationships into same-sex marriage and custody issues, uh, LGBT issues, and more recently, some surrogacy issues.
0: Great. Thank you. And we have your law partner, Sophie Jacobi Parisi, who we'll come back to in a second for her introduction. But then because you're both attorneys, I'm an attorney, you know, Jen doesn't count, I guess, because she's just a moderator here. Wait, But uh, we need someone <laughs> to keep you guys honest with the facts and especially when it comes to medical issues. So we have a doctor here as well. Dr. Christina Yanetzos. Christina, welcome. Can you give your own introduction as well?
3: Hey guys, uh, thanks for having me. So uh, I, my name is Christina Natsos. I'm an emergency medicine physician practicing in Denver, Colorado. Um, I've been in practice for uh, just about eight years and
0: um, I'm happy to be on board. Thank you, Christina. Okay. On to our other attorney, Sophia Jacoby Parisi. So um, Sophie, please introduce yourself as well.
1: Hi, I'm Sophie Jacoby-Pricey. I'm also a matrimonial lawyer based in New York. I practice with Eric at the law firm Warshaw Burstein. I have my JD and my master's in social work, which I did on purpose together, and have practiced in wow. um, family court, in abuse and neglect, in juvenile delinquency cases, and then matrimonial cases since 2004. And I'm here today, if you if you'd like me to sort of bridge into... Yeah, Earth. let's dive in. Frame the issue sure, for us. Sure. Somebody. So, you know, it's it's helpful to, to just think about where Eric and I practice, right? So we practice in New York City, in Manhattan, and, and you know, the, the five boroughs and Westchester, sort of around New York City, but mostly based in Manhattan. And right now, the New York State courts are closed, for the most part. Family court seems to be operating at um, a pretty decent Level Because they, and in New York, it's a little bit confusing because you can't get divorced in family court, which makes no logistical sense. But um, you, you go to family court for abuse and neglect cases. So if, if the city or the state is concerned about a parent, they prosecute their cases there. Domestic violence cases happen there. Juvenile delinquency cases happen there. And then you can do some custody things there. So if you're especially if you're parents uh, who are never married, your custody case is more likely to be heard there and you cannot get divorced there. So family court has been set up as a very litigant friendly, meaning that the the people who are seeking the help the court intervention walk in and get relief there. And a couple years ago, they had, you know, program to try to get domestic violence cases heard online so that people wouldn't have to go to court if they needed to get a quarter, an order of protection. So that framework seems to have helped the family court system in New York City continue to operate on some level. Mm-hmm. But really, everything else is pretty much closed. We cannot, for instance, file for divorce. We cannot file divorce action. Mm-hmm. Even though we can do it electronically, we can't. We can't file motions. We can get access to some judges, but it seems to be, based on our conversations with our colleagues, a very judge to judge question. You know, it's really at the judge's discretion whether they're hearing, you know, getting on a conference call or getting on a, a video call, which seems to be very rare. There's it doesn't seem to be happening. So that's Issue number one that Eric and I have been dealing mm-hmm. with because as soon as, you know, certainly as soon as the schools closed, but even before that, people were starting to have custody issues, right? How do you shelter in a child who has two shelters? And what does that look right. like? And so, even right. the low conflict cases that we do have <laughs> occasionally, they do exist, those people have their own issues and questions and concerns. And sometimes they've been able to work it out. And, you know, we don't hear from them. The high conflict people always have high conflict. So there are definitely issues in their world. But it's really, you know, we don't have any context for it. So Eric and I have been, as many of our colleagues have been, you know, just trying to to think about these issues in in lots of different ways and try to help people problem solve. And then I have a, a good friend who's in New Jersey and New Jersey seems to be operating. You know, the courts are up can file motions, wow. you can have video conferences, you have arguments, you call into the court system, that, so it's recorded. Your mm-hmm. clients are not on the screen but they're available to be mm-hmm. to be heard. Judges can ask them questions like on a on a conference call. So my friend who's there is, you know, fi- they're filing motions and they're having they're having these issues raised in a, in a court proceeding and getting decisions. And so the reason we're, we're here today is because I said to Eric, you know, kudos to New Jersey for, for really, I think, setting it up. And it seems to me that it was almost seamless to at least allow people to get heard so that if you don't agree with your spouse or your ex-spouse on how to shelter in your child in this circumstance, you at least have a place to go. To write your arguments, to present your arguments, and to get a decision. Now, I might not like the decision that's going to be issued, but I think you know this is what the court system is is there for. And Eric has a different perspective, and and I don't. By the way, I don't think there's a right answer at the end of this, but Mm -hmm. we we really sort of had our own back and forth, very respectfully, of course, about what's. What's the right thing to do? So is that Eric, Eric? Is that a fair framework?
2: You have to also understand we did this at like like eleven eight like eleven p.m. or midnight is when this conversation <laughs> started on email. And my spouse was like, who are you emailing? And I'm like, I'm emailing Sophie. We're having a, a very high level discussion. And he just rolled over.
1: It's hard to have an
0: affair during shelter in place. Yeah,
2: there you go. That,
0: right? We're
2: not talking about sex. I've people.
4: read stories about that. That'd be a different thing too. Yeah.
2: Right. It was really a, an article in the Times about first responders. And, and that's how Sophie and I started getting going On the conversation, we have been having this conversation before because I had a case with someone who took her kids um, uh, to another county and the father was demanding that they return and we had to get on the phone with the court. You know, we each have had cases where that has been going on. But my, I guess my problem with the hearing is where's the law coming in? I mean, what's the? There's no law on this issue. There's no law about sheltering in. There's no law about if there's something a pandemic going on in the state and there are executive orders about where you're supposed to be and what you can do. What's the court going to do? Who's the court hearing from? Two lawyers. I don't know anything about the COVID-19 except you know what I read in the in the newspaper. And some Mm -hmm. people say that's fake news. I, you know, depends, I guess, what you read. But, you know, if, if that's the basis of what we know and the doctors are learning as they go, how does a court determine what should happen here? I mean, the court is essentially stepping into the shoes of the parents and making this parental decision. Neither parent has done anything wrong. You know, when we talk about the cases where like, you know, someone's done something wrong and the child has to be taken away or there has to be supervised visits, there's something demonstrable that you can look at. There's evidence, there's proof, there's something that a parent did or a parent didn't do. But here you're looking at an external factor and you're stepping into the shoes of the parent, saying, this is what's going to happen with this child. And I will also point out that this is a very small subset. You're only dealing with divorced parents. That's true, you have kids going back and forth, but you know, as we get further on in the discussion, you know, you're you're not dealing with married couples. You're not dealing with separated couples. You're not dealing with couples who, you know, may not be married and the child shuttles back and forth. This is only when the court is involved. And, you know, a lot of these parents make the decisions themselves. And it is the hot you know, it's unfortunate that it's the, the high conflict, which I think is I think Sophie would agree is the smaller percentage of custody cases that go on, you know, most people resolve their issues. But I, I think that there's a, you know, we're asking judges to be doctors and they're not trained.
4: Yeah, They're yeah. just not trained. And I think that that is a very interesting part of this. I have a friend personally that I've watched really struggle through this. Um, And they made the decision. Luckily, they weren't high conflict, right? They made the decision as adults of these children, you know, parents of these children, to allow her their children to stay with her uh, her ex husband because he could work from home entirely. She could not, so she made that decision for their safety, you know, just for their long term safety. And but I can imagine if there was a conflict, how do you resolve that? So I think I would actually love to hear Christina's perspective on medically mm-hmm. you know the the medical perspective on on this and, you know, risks. And I mean, I I think-
0: To give some context for those who haven't read the articles or seen it, these cases that you're talking about. So the New York Times, as well as there was a case um, in Florida, that we've seen some updates about where specifically medical workers are losing custody because their ex-spouse is saying it's too great a risk for their child to be exposed to this higher level of COVID-19 because of their profession. Given those arguments, uh, yeah, let's go to Christina to talk about medically the reality of that right now from a doctor's perspective? So uh, thanks, guys. So I can say that
3: we on the front lines, emergency medicine, first responders, physicians, nurses, EMTs, respiratory therapists, there's no one better equipped to try and eliminate and diminish risk to ourselves and our families. So the first thing is, you know, when we go to work, we have, I know everyone has heard things about uh, protective equipment. But people who are doing high-risk procedures are definitely using the protection that they need. And that means putting on gowns, putting on masks, putting on gloves. In my hospital, we have someone who literally their job is to watch us put on the equipment and take off the equipment. So don and doffing the equipment to make sure that we are not self-contaminating or exposing ourselves. Secondly, most of us um, have the opportunity to either self-decontaminate at home or have made sure that we, as soon as we get to the house, I mean, I think you've probably heard stories of emergency sh- physicians stripping in their front yards and running into the house, into the shower, a little bit <laughs> over-exaggerated. For their neighbors' <laughs> enjoyment. Right, exactly. And they are like, well, what are they doing? Um, but I mean, it's it, to make sure that we're not carrying in um, the virus to our homes. And so, you know, we have been trained for many years to make sure that we limit our exposures. And it's not just for COVID, it's for you know, any virus or any infection that um, there is some sort of transmission risk. The other thing is, uh, you know, I, there's, a, there's the risk to our families. And so um, that risk is going to be indi- like individualized. So each person is going to have to take into account what their risk and their exposures are. Um, and, you know, that is going to be an individual discussion. When you come down to it, for example, in my house, it's myself and my husband, Um, we are both healthy. And so our risk of, you know, having this, having COVID kind of increase our mortality is much lower. But if you bring in, let's say my mom to live in our house, who's a bone marrow transplant patient and is on amino and chemotherapy, you know, there has to be a little bit of risk aversion. But at the same time, there are ways to do that without limiting a quality of life. The uh, American uh, College of Emergency Medicine actually came out with a statement, and this was on March 25th, 2020, and basically said that emergency physicians with nurses and physician assistants um, and all first responders, they're frontline in this pandemic. And so The entire community has come together to try and support our frontline responders and to take away someone's child when we are, we know the risks and how we can diminish those risks, basically takes away the quality of life of that person and their family life. And then we can talk about what the risks are to children. And if you look at the Colorado data, and uh, you can actually see that less than 3% of the cases in Colorado are actually children under the age of nineteen, and of course that's testing symptomatic cases, so the underlying thought is that children are asymptomatic carriers, and so the risk of mortality to them is much lower than the general population
0: yeah um that's super helpful so Eric or Sophie, is there something is there anything analogous in history of certain kind of high risk jobs or other diseases where we we look to case law or anything else
1: in this context there's uh, this is sophie there's there's nothing that comes to mind that that gives us <clears throat> that gives us any context for this so in other words there isn't one kind of employment that would maybe make you less or make you more at risk of not having custody of your children there are you know in theory jobs where you might travel a lot so you know if you're a consultant and you're always on the road or you're a pilot or a, you know a flight attendant and you're always flying so you may not have a consistent parenting schedule but that's different that's not what we're talking about we're talking about cutting off physical access between a parent who is on the front lines and their children that's that's like the only thing analogous is when you our, our, our city or child protective agency, and you're filing an application in front of a judge, and you're going to say, based on the following reports from a teacher or from a doctor, this these children must be removed from, from this parent because they're in imminent danger. That's the only analogous thing that I can think of. And, and that's, I think, why you know we're, Eric and I are appalled at the decision. So I'm not saying that the decisions are necessarily correct. The decision in Florida, I know there, I know there have been some decisions, similar decisions and, you know, all around us, they're just not being published. So I'm not, I want to be clear that I'm not advocating (laughs) that that is the right decision at all. I don't think it is. But the fact is that in New York, And this may change, you know, they they keep saying the courts are going to open and and there's going to be sort of more access, but it doesn't feel that way to us. And if you are the parent who is not on the front line, who is able to work from home, you can just self-help. In other words, you can just say, I'm not going to hand you over. I'm not going to hand our kid over to you after your last ER session. I'm just not. And that means that possession's 10 tenths of the law. And, and you, and I don't know what the ramifications are. You know, the the guidelines in in New York and all around generally seem to be follow the court orders. And if you don't follow the court orders now, it's going to come back to bite you later. But I just don't know that that's true. I just don't know that's
2: true. And, you know, I think that, that, um, I think that Christina kind of nailed it in her explanation because these judges are making decisions about risk, and yet she's the expert. She's the one who's been trained years and years of training from the, from the moment they go into medical school. They're being trained how to minimize risk to themselves, as she just explained. So they do all these things to minimize their risk at, at work and when they get home. We're supposed to think that the the judge or the lawyers who are arguing this with their with their rubber gloves and, you know, a mask that may be homemade (sighs) is going to be deciding that what she does at work and what she does at home is too risky. Yet probably what the judge did to get to work or the judge did to go to the grocery store was probably higher risk because of the lack of protection, than what Christina does every day going to work. That's where I have the problem. You can have as many hearings as you want, but the wrong people are making these decisions because they're not informed. I'm, I'm sure at the Florida hearing, everything that's done to protect the first responders is probably not being laid out. If it was, to me, the evidence is overwhelming. I also think it's sending a horrible message. I mean, here we have people who are helping others, doing what they're doing, and we're saying, yeah, thank you, but the law thinks your children shouldn't be near you. What kind of message are we sending to the kid?
3: Not only that, but um, you have a parent who is on the front lines, acting as a hero and being looked to as a hero for their community, and you're asking them to make a decision to either help their community or be with their child, which is terrible. I mean, that is that is horrible. And I cannot imagine what they are going through right now. I mean, here you are trying to save humanity, for le- lack of a better word. And you're they're saying that you're not fit to have a kid in your house, which is absolutely terrible. Well, it also puts a presumption that these medical professionals
4: would intentionally do something to harm their own children, mm-hmm. which is horrible, you know, cause that's not at all what they're trying. They don't have any intention of bringing home this horrible illness or any horrible illness that they're exposed to on any other day. I mean, for goodness sake, you know, there are so many other things you're exposed to flu you're exposed to, you know, and I know everybody's tired of the flu COVID and they're not the same thing, but on any given year, emergency room physicians are exposed to strains of flu all the time. It's not, they don't, they still bring those exact same precautions. They do all those same things to protect their families in those years too, in prior years to this.
0: It seems like we agree that these are terrible judgments, but Eric, how do you respond to Sophie's point that... We do need someone making these decisions and not letting possession be ten-tenths of the law. If one parent says, I'm just not going to return the child, that the other parent has some recourse to, to have their, their parental rights.
2: Those, I think, are the extreme cases, to be honest. I don't think that's what's going on most of the time. And maybe I'm naive. From anecdotally speaking to clients, I've heard them change their schedules. Some have gone to from 5 to 2 5 schedules to a week in a week or, you know, something with less transitions to minimize them. But in those extreme cases, I don't think that's the end of the story, just going to the court. I think that whatever that parent is going to do to keep their child there, they'll just continue to do it. So what if there's a court order? Are the police really going to enforce that court order? Are you going to go in for contempt? You're going to have that parent put in jail. Uh, you're going to have that parent lose lose um, child support because they are deathly afraid of catching that virus from their child. I don't think that's going to happen. And so I think that unfortunately, yeah, 10 tenths of the law, that's the possession. And until we're out of this and until the courts are open and you can have a real discussion about it, not a discussion or an argument That's based on fear, because I think that's what a lot of this is based on. I think they're going to either do without seeing their children for a short time or, you know, they can can go to court. But I I don't think it's going to solve the problem.
1: I don't think it's going to solve the problem necessarily either. But I think sometimes and certainly in high conflict cases, you need a decision. Someone has to make a decision because otherwise the conflict just continues to escalate. And and that involves the kids and the pressure on the children during those high conflict cases are is so intense and it's already everybody's already stressed out, right? You know, again, I'm not advocating that any of these decisions are the right decisions, but I do think sometimes a decision needs to be made. Number one, number two, I also think that in some of these decisions, let's say Eric, that a judge says, okay, you know, um, you're going to return the child, uh, you know, in in 14 days, you're going to return the child, and the parent who you know, isn't going to. They're going to violate the court order. Are the cops going to get involved? Probably not. They have other things to do. But I do think down the road, you are going to have consequences for violating a court order that was issued in the middle of this COVID emergency. And then the third thing is, I think also in, in the case in Florida and in some other cases we've heard anecdotally, that the people who are losing parenting time you know, losing time with their kids are getting orders that, that say, you're going to get a night for night makeup of time down the road. And that may seem like nothing, right? It may not feel like anything. But in the case where people are just self helping, you know, one parent could say, you, know, you kept our kid for a month, I lost, you know, two weeks of time, and I'd like to make it up in the summer the other parent could just say no way it was an emergency you know at least there is something that says that down the road when this is over when when it's appropriate and healthy and safe for people to do this again that parent who was at the front line is going to get way more parenting time it's it's something so
3: um i actually have a thought on that
1: if if you don't mind so i
3: i think the understanding is when it's healthy i think that's like a fallacy. I think that the assumption is, is that it is not healthy. But what I would say is that it, in fact, is probably more unhealthy to keep a child away from their mom and a mom away from their child emotionally and mentally, because maybe that parent is a single parent. And that is the thing that keeps them grounded is coming home and seeing their kid. For the most part, most of these first responder families have worked out things. and, And these are cases that I know of from friends where, you know, when they're working around, they're on a stretch of nights, you know, the the shared custody, if the other parent has custody of that child, um, in which case, you know, that's the one thing they look forward to is having their kid on their days off um, and being able to spend time with them. If you're taking that away from people who are already under extreme amount of stress with changing protocols and, you know, self-exposure,
1: you are putting the mental health of our first responders at risk. So, Christina, what you said is interesting because if you are a single parent, no one's, ta- no one's raising this. If you were a single parent, no one would raise this. There's no child protective proceeding that would be filed against you. It's only people who have two parents, one of whom is not on the front line, that are dealing with this. So I think I said that wrong. I'm sorry. Shared custody.
4: I I think what Christina is saying solo is like parenting. solo parenting at any time. Like you don't have a You don't have like a, a remarriage second partner or something along those
2: lines. But also understand this isn't happening to married couples. This isn't happening to someone who's a first responder living with their, their wife or husband and their children. No one's going into their home saying you can't come back in. The courts aren't going in saying, Hey, stay in your car. You can't go back in your house.
4: Sadly, I, I, I'm married to a military member. It does happen to us,
2: unfortunately. Okay, <laughs> so that, that different <laughs> rules.
4: I live under a totally different umbrella than everybody else. Nol- so. Military
2: bases have their, it's their own, that, that's their own uh, uh, code. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, in every other, it's only people who are divorced or someone who is subject to um, the courts or have been involved in the courts, that's where these cases are coming up from. But if you're in an intact family or you know, you're know home and you have your kids and, and your spouse, the courts aren't saying you can't you can't see your children. And so it's it's really very focused. And it's it's not I think that there's a due process issue there.
1: Right. When Eric and I talked about this, the only thing I I could think of that was analogous is, you know, if you're married to someone who's struggling with alcohol or, you know, with addiction and you have kids together. There's no one coming into your home to say, you can't leave your children alone with that person. Now, you might be making decisions to try to help your spouse and try to protect your children at the same time, but there's no court involvement. As soon as there is a a custody issue and someone files an application, then sobriety becomes potentially an issue. And it's a little, so that's a little bit similar, except here, the person is the community's hero. It's not an addict or somebody struggling with alcohol or ad- addiction at all.
2: Or someone hurting a child. I mean, this is someone who's, who's, who's benefiting society, and yet society is, 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 is marking them. Like, with you know, it's, it's amazing.
0: I mean, based on what Christina is saying, that a medical professional is hot, has the high training to protect themselves, protect their family, it almost seems like it could be flipped to be like, hey, as a medical professional, I should have full custody because I know how to protect myself and our child, and you don't. So I should have our child. I don't I mean, I'm sure it's not being used that way, but in a way, it seems like it could be flipped.
2: But it also, it's a matter of when we make decisions about kids in courts, it's generally when a professional and it's either a mental health professional or a medical professional or an educational professional, an expert comes in and says, this is what is best for the child. And I'm not hearing that that's what's being done in these cases. Where's the, the expert is really the parent and that's who should be listened to. And yet that whole theory of listening to the experts and reporting about the children and what is best for them, it seems like in these cases, that's being thrown out the window.
0: Well, it seems like they, should, they would need a medical report or an expert report if they're really going to claim that the medical professional parent is putting the child at risk, right? I don't know. Were, were those submitted in any of these cases where a doctor was saying, yes, I think this other doctor is putting the child or family at risk?
2: Not that I'm aware of. Maybe they're getting a pediatrician to say it, you know, someone who's not, not working in the hospitals.
0: Yeah. So, Sophie, I mean I my understanding is the courts will continue to function at some level and continue to make these judgments. What do you think is the right argument or or level of um argument when it comes to to these cases, like requiring experts who are not just the parents or some other higher level of knowledge on the issue? Uh, the only
1: thing that it, this to me this reminds me of when uh child protective services makes An immediate application in front of a judge asking for the removal of children, which is a very high burden. And a judge makes a decision that if they make the decision to remove the children, that parent has an automatic right to a full hearing. In theory, in New York, it's, it's 24 hours. It doesn't practically happen that way. So I, I sort of think that is one methodology. It's just that the people who are the experts are also the people at the front line, right? So I, in thinking about this, if I needed to bring an application, I would love to have, you know, an affidavit from Christina explaining what are the steps that are being taken in her ER and, and how, what are all the protocols that are in place. But, you know, Christina is a little busier right now trying to, you know, save humanity then I don't want to put her, I'm I'm not going to take, you know, six hours of her time to have her sign something and put her in a courtroom. And it's just not practical in this sort of extreme place that we're in right now. So, you know, and then are you going to have just like a few experts that are floating around that are immediately hired guns for one side or the other? Probably. So I'm not sure how much that really helps. And, you know, again, it's, there are lots of times that we have decisions that we don't like you know, or decisions we don't agree on, not just in these custody issues and in other parts of our cases, that's the nature of having this mm-hmm. judicial system. I just think that if you don't have a place to force the communication and the, the, the yes. issue and to have a decision, it's everybody's just reeling, right? So if you're just an a ER after you come <laughs> home and you say, um, well, I thought you were going to drop our son off tonight at five. And the other parent says, oh, well, I'm not going to. That's terrible. I mean, its I don't know that that's any better than you know at least getting a, a notice that there's going to be some kind of hearing in court and getting an order. You could be furious with the order. But it just feels to me like the self-help is dangerous. And I also think you know there's a whole other frontline group of people we're not talking about, which is the delivery people, the grocery store people. I mean, those people shouldn't be losing access to their kids at, at a self-help. You know, one parent saying, "Oh, you're, you worked at the grocery store last night," I'm not giving your kids back. So, uh, you know, that it's imperfect. There's no, <laughs> you know, this is so new, and, and our, you know, our our court system still still don't have it fully set up that we can have hearings or even conferences, really, where we can see the judges and there's a, and it's transcribed and recorded. That's just we we weren't set up for that. And hopefully mm-hmm. we will. We're going to be
4: forced to be. I say, I'd i be interested. I know Eric mentioned a lot of, you know, kind of, and I'm going to use the word classes of people, but that th- this wouldn't even work for anyway. You know, you're talking about people who were not married when um, they had a child. And so they never had a court action to for custody. They were just doing an informal agreement. Uh, how do you could you foresee that there might be some new mechanism for things like this to you know be created to solve these problems in the future
2: i think those would be things like that sophie talked about like you could have video calls with judges to address these issues it's a matter of knowing your rights and that's the hard part in these cases when you, when you have those kinds of situations a lot of people don't know what they're entitled to or are afraid to go to court because of what they hear, the stories they hear, afraid of, for what, you know, a whole host of reasons, it becomes very difficult for them to, to trust in the judicial system. And I think that's part of it. You know, I think that's what happens or what the results are very much color whether you're going to go back to the justice system or not, whether you felt there was justice or you can get it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, there's certainly clients of ours and certainly working, I was in the Bronx family courthouse and there's there was lots of times where I felt there was an abuse of justice or that it wasn't, you know, certainly the worlds of justice weren't turning. So I think it's kind of funny that I'm on this side of the argument, but I do think there has to be some third party mechanism. There's a whole world in New York and I think across the country called parent coordinators. And those are people who um, will put into place to help parents, whether they were married or not, but parents who share a child together or children together to help navigate these issues. And so the parent coordinators now are, are being faced with a lot of these questions and trying to help at least facilitate communication about what are we going to do and how, you know, why, why is everybody so worried? You know, what is your concern and what is your concern? And, you know, as Christina said, if she brought her mother into the house, that that certainly would raise a, a level of concern. So how do you start to at least talk about that all that stuff, honestly? But, you know, they're not, most of them are mental health professionals and they don't feel equipped to make any medical determinations on what should actually be happening. So I'm curious if you had the same client approach you in
0: one of these situations, if you'd be giving the same or different advice, what are your thoughts on what you would tell I guess, either a parent who's a medical professional or
1: the, the, spouse, the ex-spouse? Well, right now the clear directive is at least in, in this state, is that there are, where there are current court orders about a custody arrangement, so a, whatever the schedule is, if you either you know, written, did it in a written agreement or there's a court order, that schedule should be followed. But then we have all of these other CDC recommendations and recommendations from the mayor and the governor, and they're not always reconcilable. So that's, that gets a little tricky. If there are, and I think every case is different, if, you, if two people, two parents live in Manhattan and they live four blocks apart from each other and they can, you know, neither one of them is vulnerable medically or lives with anyone medically vulnerable, those people probably aren't having issues and they're going back and forth and wearing a mask in between. But when you have someone who is, you know, on the front lines, that becomes a different issue. And I think depending on who we represent and what are the other factors in it, we would say, you know, follow the court orders or can we come up with another arrangement that makes sense? Like Eric said, you know, there are people who are changing their schedule so they, the child goes back and forth less. So there's less frequent, you know, transitions outside, which just makes sort of some
2: practical sense. Or using, or using other means like you know more Skype, more FaceTime, more Zoom, um, y- using those means to you know kind of to to help with the situation. I think what Sophie is kind of hit on, which is what we tell our clients is to be rational. That you have to make rational decisions that make sense.
4: <laughs> how many people? Percentage? Come on, percentage. How many people really are rational in decisions like this? <laughs>
2: Well, you know what? I, I think a lot of it has to do with the lawyer and, and how much they can convince their clients that in the end, you know, that you still have to you still have to justify what you're doing. And that's what Sophie started with when we talked when we started talking about this, was that when this is over, the judges are going to look and, 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 and really want to hear and look at the person's actions and look at what they said, whether it's texts or, or emails what did they say? What did they express? Was it rational? Did they express themselves? Were they justified in what they were doing? Or was it more vindictive? Was this just vengeance? Was this just being, you know, um, I want to stick it to my ex-spouse, or I want to stick it to my ex-spouse's, you know, new spouse. But those are going to be, you know, that's what I tell my clients is, Think about the future. If we have a pending case or something that's going to go on later, you know, make sure that, that think it through. And are you being logical? Are you giving alternatives? Are you suggesting alternatives? Are you suggesting the makeup? Are, you know, those are the things that are important. And that's what we would stress so that the person makes the right call. But I think a lot of this is still up in the air. I think it's to be, you know, to be determined once the roosters, uh, you know, come home or it the hens.
1: What's been interesting is how many clients, former clients or current clients who... Do try to really act rationally most of the time, if you know as much as anyone can in a high conflict divorce. But have have said, am I overreacting? Does this make sense? I mean, even former clients who have you know called us just to say, you know, this is what we're going to do. We're going to have uh, given up some time, or I'm, we're going to change the schedule. You know, is this rational? Am I overreacting? I think everyone's feeling was, you know, am I am i just being crazy and the answer is no <laughs> this is really stressful we started out this podcast saying you know we're also homeschooling children and and managing you know to try to work and teachers and a million emails about you know we just changed in my in my family we just had to change the platform that we were using for the kids for the education i spent hours this morning. you know it's all stressful so then when you add you know trying to work through stuff with your ex spouse, when, you know, maybe you didn't always get along, but you had a schedule that worked. And now there are all these concerns. It's so scary. And it's just so anxiety ridden. So if that part's been really, you know, it's nice to know that people are trying to check themselves. I mean, what's funny is that, you know, Eric and I are usually very rational ourselves too. And, you know, we're also now in thrown, thrown into this. It's not like no one's affected. We're all affected. I can, I can say from a medical perspective
3: um, that protocols, data, information is changing on an hour to day-to-day basis. Literally how I treat a patient, one hour may be different the next. And in the same way, we're still learning the impacts that, that COVID has on families and nucleuses and uh, mental health and all of these things. So it's kind of a changing environment and what I can say is that the unknown is is not comfortable for anyone. Um, so there's definitely you know heightened awareness and more stress that can lead to more conflict in um, relationships that have conflict at baseline.
1: You know, I would just say that that we are hearing, you know, from our friends, from our former clients, from our colleagues that that anybody who shares custody of kids is is are having discussions. They're making changes. They're gut checking with, you know, themselves and other people about what's, what's safe, what's appropriate. Am I, do I need to think about my ex's, you know, my ex mother-in-law, do I need to think about my ex's, uh, new spouses, kids, you know, and the answer is yes. I mean, all of it's into play now. and, And it's, I, I've been mostly amazed at the ability for people to communicate. I've had one client recently said, I've spoken to my ex-husband more in the last three weeks than I have in the last three years. That's amazing. Yeah, no,
0: it's a rough situation. Um, Well, we appreciate everyone joining us. Does anyone have any closing thoughts they want to share about the issue for those who might be intellectually curious about the issue or kind of dealing with it themselves?
2: Yeah, I would say that... um, there are, there are three words I would I would use um, and they overlap with what Sophie just said understanding understanding each side's perspective flexibility have flexibility in terms of of you know it just because it's written doesn't mean um, it has to be exactly that way Think about different ways that could work for your family to make the schedule work and this is an opportunity for, us to teach. And it kind of goes back to the first responders and the heroes. We're teaching our children how to resolve conflict. And self-help is not a way to resolve conflict. And our kids watch us pretty closely. I think we all know that. They listen to us. They hear every time we use a curse word and they know everything we do. But they, they look to us to learn how to solve problems. And parents have to solve problems. Even divorced parents have to solve problems.
0: Wise words. Christina, do you want to wrap us up with any words from the medical expert we have here?
3: I think, you know, as we've discussed before, right now, the one thing that I've noticed is everyone is coming together to try and save lives, whether you are in a grocery store or you're staying at home or you're in the workspace. and every effort to have resolution to conflict and put forward your best self is probably in the best interest of everyone, um, including first responders and including those who work in grocery stores. So um, I think everyone just needs to do their part. Christina, thank
1: you for your part.
0: Yeah, and thank you.
2: Yes, thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Christina. And thank you both to Sophie and Eric and my co-host Jen, of course, for um, having this conversation.